This is Geek Gab with your hosts, John, Brian, and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, August 5th, 2017. This is issue one, excuse me, episode 110, Towering Heights and Crushing Depths. We're going to be reviewing the Dark Tower and 47 Meters today. And uh, I saw both of those movies this week, but I'm going to bet money that neither of my co-hosts has seen either of them. That is a bullet for you, Daddy Warpig. You win. Alrighty then. Well, uh, what have you guys done this week? Well, it's been a gaming been... week for me. Oh, go ahead. go ahead. Oh, that's all. It's been a gaming week for me. Um, I wasn't here last week. I, I want to remind everybody that we had an awesome uh, game night podcast with Mark Kern uh, about role-playing game design and video games and all sorts of stuff. Um, and the rest of the time, I've been gaming, as usual. What about you, Brian? Well, I've got some special news this week. Folks out there who don't already know, I'm now a two-time Dragon Award nominee, thanks to my awesome readers. My book, Soul Cycle Book 3, The Secret Kings, has been nominated for Best Science Fiction Novel this time. Congratulations. Who Thanks. Are you up against? And, uh, I think Secret of Stew, I'm up against John Scalzi. <laughs> so I must break him. <laughs> Does he even write science fiction anymore? I mean, does he even write anymore? That's what I meant to say. Well, he released a pastiche of Asimov and, and Herbert uh, that was supposed to be his shot onto the A-list, and it failed. I mean, it sold high mid-list, but uh, didn't meet towards expectations, and it was a year late, and now his next one is looking to be late. So I think he's feeling the pressure. I'm looking to add a little more, and uh, if Daddy Warpig will be so kind, we should have a link where you can go and register to vote in the Dragon Awards for free. And then also Secret Kings is available on Kindle Unlimited. So if you uh, prime, you can download it and read it for free right now. Um, all right, go ahead and check that out, folks. See the Dragon Awards. Uh, check out who they've been, who has been nominated and give it a, uh, um, give it a look scene and vote for whomsoever you will based on works you have watched or read. Um, but as always, uh, check out Soul Cycle for free through Kindle Unlimited and uh, and cogitate on whether or not that deserves uh, deserves your vote. Um, and that link is now in the description because as I have been talking, I've been busily copying and pasting and editing and getting that link all set up because that's the kind of amazing multitasking host I am. You're the original Renaissance man. Um, <laughs> thanks. I'd like to add one thing. My lovely and talented editor, El Jaji Lamplighter Wright, uh, who's a friend of the show and wife of dear friend of the show, John C. Wright, is also up for Dragon Award in the young adult category for her latest Rachel Griffin book, Up Against Her Husband. So we got a little... Uh -oh. Yeah, we got a mini drama there. However, if it will make the choice easier, because I already have a Dragon Award for my best horror novel last year, Soul Dancer, I have agreed with Jaggi, you know, we've discussed it, and uh, agreed that 
this is fair. This is the uh, the optimal optimal arrangement. If Secret Kings wins best science fiction novel, she gets the award. I'm ceding it to her because she helps make the books as good as they are, and she deserves it. And that way, both her and John can win. Oh, that's very gracious of you, Team Jaggy. Get on board. You make me want to write something just so I can have her edit it. <laughs> it's worth it. She's amazing. Uh, speaking of which, folks, um, there has never been a better time for people who want to be writers to be able to write their own stuff and get it published. Um, I'm not saying you're going to be a great writer, and I'm not saying you're going to be a success or make a living at it or anything, but if you have been if you have been hitherto reluctant to put pen to paper, even uh, metaphorically speaking, using a computer and a word processor, now is the time to get over your reluctance to uh, make something of your own because you can get it published and put it out there and uh, try to establish a career free of the dominance of the gatekeepers at the big five publishers who have been, you know, running things for the last 30, 40 years. You can do an end run around agents, around the slush pile, around editors, and get stuff published and delivered to readers if you are capable, if you have something worth saying, and if you are skilled at saying it, you can establish a career on your own without anybody else standing in your way. So the only thing that stands in your way is your innate talent, the amount of effort you put in, and your willingness to show your work to other people. There has never been a better time than now to start that process. So if you're at all interested in, in writing, if you're at all interested in writing as a career, by all means, do it now. And check out my sub-podcast on the GeekGab Podcast Network, GeekGab on the Books, where I offer actionable advice along with uh, a number of stellar guests who are from all over the writing spectrum, you know, all levels of success and talent. I've uh, gotten some pretty good feedback on that, and I think we're helping people. Um, before we get to the reviews, I want to read one thing real quick. This is a, a post I threw up um, on the Castalia House blog last week. And for those of you who are on the fence about what you can contribute to literature, um, there, was a, there was another blog post put out this week, and... I'm going to say the wrong blogger who did it. He was talking about all of the current franchises that dominate geek culture, Star Wars, the Marvel superhero movies, Star Trek, and so on and so forth, and pointing out how each of them was on the verge of collapse due to lack of creativity, due to a all sorts of problems fun, stemming from fundamental flaws in the people who are doing them. But what it comes down to is there's about to be a collapse of applicable landmark blockbuster science fiction and fantasy because the people who are making it in the big companies are incompetent. They're dropping the ball. They simply cannot be 
as good or compelling as those who have written in the past, which those of you who have read stuff that the Pulp Revolution has been talking about, Robert E. Howard, uh, you know, the John Carter Mars series, the Tarzan books, um, C.L. Moore, all of these authors that uh, Jeffro talks about in Appendix N, A Literary History of Dungeons and Dragons, available on Amazon now, check it out. Um, I get no money for that, by the way. It's just a great book. You should read it. Uh, you notice that the creativity and the skill and the talent and all of the amazing stuff that these people did back then uh, just blows away stuff today. And the stuff today has been rehashed and regurgitated and redone and resold and repackaged. And there, not only is there not much that is original, what is original isn't very good, and it's looking like the entire endeavor, the entire industry of modern geek culture is going to go bankrupt very soon and have nothing left to offer the audience. The box office receipts, despite, you know, we've done movie review shows almost every weekend for the last two or three months because there have been so many landmark uh, geek media movies coming out, and yet box office receipts are down this year. They're off like a third, I think, if I can remember the news I saw this week. If I had known I was going to be doing this rant at the beginning of the show, I would have gotten these links and authors set up, but I'm just doing this off the top of my head. You will have to forgive me. Um, they're losing viewers. They're losing readers from Marvel Comics. Uh, during its heyday, Marvel Comic titles, landmark titles, flagship titles were selling hundreds of thousands of copies, and now big Marvel titles are selling 20,000 copies. They have driven away the audience from comics. They've driven away the audience from science fiction and fantasy novels. They have destroyed the short fiction market. They have driven away viewers from movies, despite how popular Marvel is. The industry as a whole is seeing so many bombs and so many people fleeing uh, the movie theaters this year. And there is an opportunity there for people who are creative, for people who are talented, for people who are hardworking, and for people who are willing to put in the work to manage their business and publicize themselves. If you want to be a writer, you have the business side, marketing, and writing. And all three are equally important. You cannot be a successful writer without focusing on all three. But there is an opportunity for you if you are capable of making stories that are great, then you can have success and you can replace these stumbling titans. You can be part of the generation that brings us back to something good and brings us back to something great if you're willing to do the work and if you're willing to be bold enough to write it on your own. So the piece I wrote on the Castelia House blog, touches on all those things. So I'm going to read it now before we go into the reviews. Pulp Revolution, The Future is Ours, written by me, Daddy Warpig. Seems like everyone wants to know exactly what exactly this Pulp Revolution thing exactly is and how exactly and precisely do we define it. And what stories are or are not included in the specific canon of this very specific bomb-throwing literary book club movement thing. In the interests of clarifying nothing and agitating everyone, I present just what the hell is this pulp revolution thing anyway? 
The pulp revolution isn't about the time or place or genre of a story, nor about remaking old stories. It's about learning from the past how to make great stories. It's about grabbing the audience right out of the gate and keeping them mesmerized by moving the story along. It's about the absolute minimum of boring talky baloney and the absolute maximal entertainment, enjoyment, and fun. It's about audience, first, last, and always. It's about eschewing all else in pursuit of stories that inspire, that thrill, that horrify, that move, that elate. It's about storytelling in its purest and most elemental form. It's about all that and nothing else. Maybe your story has hard science or not. It doesn't matter. Maybe your story has Tolkien-esque elves or not. It doesn't matter. Maybe your story is set in the 1930s or not. It doesn't matter. Is it thrilling? Is it compelling? Is it entertaining? Is it moving? Is it inspiring? Is it horrifying? Does it grab the audience from sentence one and pull them through the story? Does it, in short, enthrall them? Only this matters. The writers and editors of the Pulps had a simple mandate. Write for the audience, write to tell stories the audience loved and wanted more of, write to drive the audience wild, or go out of business. In this cauldron of fierce competitiveness, they were forced to develop their talents to the utmost. They told great stories because it was that or go bust. We can learn from them. The pulp revolution eschews all else. Laws of genre, preachiness and propaganda, minute and mind-numbing and irrelevant details of world-building, technobabble, or whatever else the author wants to spit out to show how clever they are. We issue all those things in pursuit of stories that drive the audience wild. Finding them, sharing them, and making them. The story, and only the story, and only ever the story. We treasure adventure, exploration, bold characterization, heroics, and action. We treasure all that entertains and enthralls, all that moves and inspires, all that drives the audience wild. We plumb the pulps for ideas and tropes long forgotten, like ancient perilous elves, like wild and unfettered fantasy stories, like plots, archetypes, and entire genres long since forgotten. We take all these great and forgotten elements and build something new and exciting from them. The Pulp Revolution is not about the past. It's about the future. The future of storytelling, the future of publishing, and the future of fantasy and science fiction. The Pulp Revolution is the future. It is all that is vital and alive about storytelling. It is all that audiences cheer for and love. Everyone else will join us us or decline into irrelevance. We are the pulp revolution. The future is ours. That was a stirring statement and it needed to be said. Bravo. So again, folks, I encourage you, if you listen to this podcast, if you feel the urge to create, if you feel the urge to write, if you feel the urge to make something like that, there is no better time than now. The scene is big. It is growing. 
you have the potential to help grow it more and get in on the ground floor and capture a large audience. I encourage everyone who is listening, who has the slightest interest in attempting to be a professional writer, put your nose to the grindstone, study the markets, learn your craft, learn what is necessary to market, learn what is necessary to manage the business, and go for it. There is no reason not to. You may not succeed, but you can still do something good. Yeah, I just want to second all of that that Daddy Warpig said and say that every new writer grows the market. When you enter the market, you bring new fans, new readers with you. Your book has a chance to read more people and then connect with other writers who are writing what... So that is how you start a, a movement. You know, that, that is how you recapture Lost Ground, Amazon, and, and Indie, and even just authors who build a big brand and sell through their websites directly. That is what's going to help us take back the converged institutions and hopefully recover something of the, of the culture because we're at risk of losing the ability to tell our own story to ourselves. That's what we're seeing in comics and in Hollywood right now. So, um, again, I, I wasn't expecting to open the show with a, with a rant like that, but I feel the need recently to encourage people to go out and create because you can be part of something uh, even if you don't necessarily see the level of financial success from writing that you might wish. You can be part of something great. Uh, you can write reviews for Amazon if you don't feel like writing fiction. You can share books that you love and, and please don't feel obligated to share books that you don't think are up to snuff. Go and find books that you love by authors that you love that are you know, wherever you can find them, uh, even if they're published by the big publishers. But take a look. If you haven't been motivated previously, take a look at the books that are published by the Pulp Revolutionaries and see if they suit you. See if you enjoy them. See if you like um, what they're writing. And go back and read the old pulps because I guarantee something, folks. I guarantee you something. Every single person with the exception of one single individual that I know of who has gone and read the old pulps, John Carter, Conan, all the stories I mentioned earlier, every single one of them has decided that they wanted to try it, that they wanted to try their hands at it. That's how inspiring just the fiction is. Is it's Those stories, just one of them, is a thousand times more inspiring than the little speech I just gave. So go and read the stories, go and read the classics, go and read the canon for fantasy and science fiction that have been forgotten. Go and read A. Merritt, uh, who's just done some amazing stuff. Go and, ch go and uh, check out Appendix and the Literary History of Dungeons and Dragons by Jeffro Johnson, and check out the books that he talks about, that he reviews, because you will be inspired in the sense of having new ideas, in the sense of having your horizons broadened to look beyond what has been the status quo in fantasy and science fiction for so long, but you will also be inspired just to sit down and create and write. I guarantee it. 
if you want some motivation, go check out the stories. And, and the stories are great stories anyway. That's why you're inspired. When is the last time you read a modern book and thought just in your emotions? We're so excited for the imagination, so excited for worlds beyond our own, so excited for space empires and space princesses, so excited for vast and huge and menacing dragons and brave and bold knights in bright armor riding out to face them at dawn, so inspired by thieves skulking through a crypt, avoiding traps and the undead, so inspired by all of these things that we love that you just felt you had to go out and create. That's what the old stories do. That's how great they are. That's how awesome they are. They inspire you to create. And what I'm telling you is this. If we do it right, if those of us involved in the pulp revolution, or even those who are not directly involved in the pulp revolution, but who are fellow travelers, like Nick Cole doesn't write pulp books, but he's still you know, friendly to us. A lot of the superversive people don't, uh, but I include them in this. If you are willing to learn how to grab the audience and drag them through your stories, you can be that for a new generation of readers and a new generation of writers. Just think about that, folks. Imagine that for just a second. All of the engineers and scientists and technicians who became NASA and who put men on the moon were inspired by the John Carter of Mars novels. So you can write stories like that. Hone your craft, practice, get your work out there, and you can be the inspiration for a new generation of fans. It's possible. Indeed it is. So, we saw some movies. Yes, we did. <laughs> um, and I, I saw 47 Meters, which is the new Mandy Moore film, and I saw The Dark Tower, which is the latest adaptation of Stephen King's novels. And I've been thinking about this Mandy Moore movie, mm. and I've been wishing that I had more to say about it. I've been wishing I had more to say about it, but <sighs> there isn't a whole lot to the movie. The plot is straightforward and simple, and it's it's just not done very well. Um, There's a girl and her sister. They're on vacation in Mexico. They decide to go diving, scuba diving in a cage to see some great white sharks up close. The cage breaks loose, falls to the ocean floor, and that's it. They fight to survive. 
They fight oxygen, uh, their air tanks that are running out. They fight the depths, uh, nitrogen narcosis coming up wrong in the bends. They fight the sharks who are swirling around them. And it's a movie that has the form that appears like it should be exciting. It has all the elements of a movie that could be exciting. They just don't come together in a form that's very exciting. And the fact that it's a simple, straightforward plot is actually a plus, but the simple, straightforward plot isn't, it, it, it didn't grip me very much. And all I can assume is that it was um, some failure on the part of the director to really make the scenes compelling or some failure on the part of the actors to make their characters compelling, but there isn't a whole lot there that comes through. And so the movie, it isn't bad. It isn't terrible. It's well shot. The sharks look great. Um, they don't look fake or, or overly CGI. It just doesn't quite come together at the end. It doesn't quite gel into a compelling or interesting movie. Um, so I don't know. I wish I had something else to say about it, but that's the beginning and end of it. It could have been a much, much better movie than it was. And there is no obvious huge flaws, but I just didn't find it to be very interesting or dynamic. Um, and it's supposed to be a drama, not a thriller. I guess, I'm guessing, but it just doesn't quite work on that level. So, um, I don't know. This is a little petty, is, but I find the title of the movie is way too abstract. Yeah, the title is not gripping. It is not interesting. It does not make you really want to see the movie. Um, I mean, it refers, of course, to the fact that their cage hits the bottom of the ocean 47 meters down. Uh, so it's in kind of indicative of what's going on, but it's still not. Uh, it doesn't have, like, you know, Jaws had a visceral mm -hmm. title. Yeah, so. and, it's, and it's just, it's an abstraction. Um, here's, here's what I took the pyramid of abstraction. When you're writing prose, or especially titles, you want to take things down from the abstract and concretize them as much as possible. So in this case, they would have been uh, they would have done better to use feet instead of meters, because a meter is still a meter even in space. It's just it's an abstract, arbitrary measure. What about but fathoms? It, fathoms would have been better, right? Because it's still based on human, like it, it's based on a concrete human body measurement. So like I I can picture, you know, like 120 feet or whatever the conversion is, but I, I really can't. I have trouble picturing what 47 meters depth of water looks like in my head. It definitely needed, um, it needed something. Uh, you know, even like, I don't, even something like, you know, 47 meters down or yeah, whatever, something that, put a hint of danger. I'm not saying that's a great title. I'm just saying that would have been, um, it would have at least added something more. Um, it, it's like a movie that says two inches. That does right. nothing. 
Yeah, well, according to the IMDb page, it was it actually like under him. They were 154 feet. So it was a bit off. See? I, I don't even know what a meter is. What do I know? Um, yeah, and I There was another shark movie that came out last year called The Shallows. And um, it had the uh, actress from Pretty... Uh, oh, dear. I, can't, I forgot her name now. She was in the town. She played the sister in the town uh, that he abandons. Oh. She's married to... Um, Ryan Reynolds now, uh, and if I could remember her name, I would. But it's called The Shallows. I didn't see it. I have heard that it's good, but I haven't seen it. Um, I don't know. You can do shark movies well. This one just isn't. So, on to the Dark Tower. Um, the Dark Tower is an adaptation. Oddly enough, strangely enough, it, it is not actually an adaptation primarily of the Stephen King Dark Tower series. I want to say that again because that may not have made sense. The Dark Tower movie is not an adaptation. It is not primarily an adaptation of the Dark Tower books. It is Stephen King has been writing the Dark Tower since he was began as a writer. And he kind of stopped and plodded along for a while. And then after he got into his nearly fatal accident with a van, somebody was backing up and ran him over. Um, and he spent a lot of time in the hospital and was almost killed. He came out and rushed through the last three books just to get them out. Um, and then went on to a new phase of his career. One of his books, I believe, was called Hearts in Atlantis. And he has been tying in a lot of his books for a long time into his Dark Tower series, some well, some poorly, and some that he later had to retcon out of existence, like Insomnia. Oh, Blake Lively. Yeah, Blake Lively is the actress in The Shallows. Sorry, folks. Um, thanks, Brian. Um, but Hearts in Atlantis is about a kids being kidnapped by strange creatures and taken someplace where they get strapped into chairs and their psychic energy is used to assault the Dark Tower. So it's peripherally involved in the books by implication in that it talks about the Dark Tower but has nothing to do with the character of Roland the Gunslinger or Jake Chambers or any of the other uh, Detta uh, or any, any other characters. It's just that they're involved in this assault on the Dark Tower, and yet this ancillary work is the centerpiece of this movie. It's the beginning of the movie. The very first scenes are concerned with it. That's why this isn't a spoiler, because it's bam, right out the gate. The very first thing you see is scenes based on this story, it is the motivating force for Jake Chambers to actually make the crossing into uh, this other world called Midworld. And the characters and situations of it are what dominate the entire movie up until the climax. This is not an adaptation of The Dark Tower. It's an adaptation of Hearts in Atlantis with all of those characters taken away, the Dark Tower characters added in, and a tiny itsy-bitsy bit of the Dark Tower series thrown in just to make it look like it has something to do with the series. 
they did something similar with the Ender's Game movie in that it wasn't just the Ender's Game book. It had a lot of material from other books added in to kind of fill it out. But um, it, it just didn't work for this movie. And I'm not saying it was a bad idea, but everything they did in this movie, with the sole exception of the climactic gunfight, everything they did in this movie didn't work. It just never gelled. The very first half of the movie moves far too quickly. They jump from scene to scene to scene to, you know, plot element, plot element, plot element, and you don't really have time to sit back and absorb it. The movie is only an hour and a half long, which I applaud. But at the same time, you have to give the audience time enough to absorb. One, they start talking about a foreign world. Two, I mean like an alien planet. Two, they talk about the Dark Tower, which is at the center of all of the worlds of existence. They talk about how the Dark Tower broadcasts energy that keeps out demons and darkness. They talk about how, yet it is said the mind of a child can bring down the Dark Tower. And then they talk about this kid who's seeing visions of the Dark Tower and this kid who's seeing visions of the Gunslinger. Then they introduce a bunch of people who are dying, and it's the there's this Gunslinger there, and then the Man in Black shows up, and he, he has magic, and he orders the dad's, dad's guy to die. And, and, and then we go back to the kid, and the kid uh, is in New York, and he sees some of these strange creatures who wear wear faces, literally like cut off people's faces as masks and they're in New York and he gets really terrified because it's something from all these dreams and he's having troubles at school and his mom's about to send him off to this uh, psychological institute and, and all this stuff happens in a really, really short period of time. If you found that long rambling discourse somewhat confusing and unclear, it is because the movie does the same thing. The movie is rambling, or at least it seems like it's rambling. What it's actually doing is it's hitting all of these necessary world-building pipeline elements, but there's too many of them. There's too many of them, and it's confusing. Now... The problem is that Stephen King does really goofy world building. He'll take an idea that sounds awesome and just throw because he he's a they call him pantsers, right? He writes off the top of his head, right. And generally, his books are books that read good as you're going through them and might provide a good and entertaining ride. but, he just throws elements. He doesn't do world building, except kind of in retrospect. Once he gets to the end of the book, maybe he'll adjust things here and there. But he just throws random stuff in. And so his plots have a tendency to meander. His plots have a tendency to hit sudden stops where you just kind of, nothing's happening. You're sort of pooling around. And then all of a sudden, something random happens and he just jumps ahead. Uh, he, and, and you're going to say, but, but DW, he's so successful. Okay, Stephen King is successful because of something I'd like to call, it's a term I came up with this morning as I was thinking about what I was going to say about this movie. I'd like to call this the hot chick conversion factor. 
And I want you to do a little imagination exercise with me. You have two women who are going to tell you a concept, and then they're going to ask you to give them $100. Could be anything. And the concept is fundamentally flawed. And one woman is a slightly pudgy, kind of dowdy, average, everyday, ordinary woman in jeans, sandals, a loose striped shirt, and she's wearing kind of ugly glasses. And the other woman is a Victoria's Secret supermodel. Now, I guarantee you money that the first woman, the dowdy woman, will not get very many men giving her $100 bills based off of, let's say, a pitch for a penny stock. But the Victoria's Secret supermodel will because every idea sounds better, sounds more intelligent, sounds more coherent when it's delivered by a hot chick. Every joke sounds funnier when it's delivered by a hot chick. And the exact same idea delivered by an average, ordinary, everyday woman will sound more or less as dumb as it actually is. It's the hot chick conversion factor. When a hot chick tells you something, you have to think twice and wonder if the reason you think this idea is good is because it's actually a good idea or if it's being delivered by a hot chick. So, yes, folks, oddly enough, in this metaphor, Stephen King is the hot chick because he is such a good writer. He is such a talented writer. His prose on a sentence-by-sentence -sentence basis is amazing. He is better than the vast majority of other people who are writing out there. He doesn't have to depend on world building. He doesn't have to depend on a coherent story. He doesn't have to depend on well-thought-out plots. He can just do whatever the hell he wants, and people love it because he's so good as a writer. As a writer, he's the equivalent of the hot chick. But then you give this material to a movie studio to adapt and put on screen all of the latent flaws that you don't realize because of Stephen King's talent and skill come to the fore. They dominate the work. Which is why so few Stephen King adaptations have been any good, and the ones that are good are notably not his fantastic or horror material. The ones that are good, that are widely cited and widely loved, are Stand By Me and The Shawshank Redemption. Two completely mundane stories, no supernatural elements at all. Because all he's doing is talking about people and situations, He's not talking about fantastic 
worlds. He's not talking about fantastic elements. He's stuck to reality. So those two stories were widely loved movies, and everything else he's done, when it's been adapted for the most part, there may be some exceptions, but none that are springing to mind right now, um, they have been awful. Because Stephen King is, his world building is goofy. He puts a lot of goofy elements in it. Um, and let me give you two examples from the Gunslinger series. The Wolves of the Kala are about a bunch of raiders who turn out to be wolf robots who wear Dr. Doom robes and who use Harry Potter-inspired Quidditch flyers, those little golden, whatever they call them in, in the Quidditch matches, uh, the Sneech, I don't remember. Um, they have blades on them instead of the little feathery wings. And they're literally called Harry Potter robots. It, that's, that's stamped on the box of these things coming. It's in the book. Folks, that is goofy. There's just no other word for it. It's not epic. It's not threatening. It's not grand. It's not the walls of Helm's Deep or the massive city of Minas Tirith. It's goofy. It's silly. And it would look terrible up on the screen. So the screenwriters were faced with trying to take seven books and a ton of ancillary works and plumb through all the goofiness, plumb through all the things that work really, really well because Stephen King is such a great author and try and come up with a non-goofy or minimally goofy storyline and it doesn't quite work because so much of the movie is so goofy. Matthew McConaughey, by the way, his um, he does an excellent job. His performance is impressive. He's uh, He's been kicking up his game in the last, what, five, ten years? Uh, and this is another one of his uh, great performances. I really didn't like the character of Roland, not just because they cast Idris Elba, who is a great actor, who I have been disappointed that we haven't seen Idris Elba in more things, but The Dark Tower was not the right movie to put him in. His gunslinger is sad, broken, self-pitying, on the verge of giving up gunslinging. He is not driven, impassive, courageous. He is not Roland from the books. He's just a guy who has the name of Roland. It has nothing to do with the controversy about race. It has everything to do with the fact that he's kind of sad and pathetic. His character is. He's weepy. He's whiny. He's crying. So, they did not do a good job adapting the books because you can't do a good job adapting the silly material that Stephen King puts in his books. You can go back to the fourth book in the Gunslinger series. He has a multicolored gate with 
uh, a rainbow, black, yellow, orange. And when you look close, each one of them has little different things. One of them has stars. One of them have horses. I mean, it's literally a Lucky Charms gate. It's goofy. And it sunk the, uh, it sunk the adaptation. By the way, that's not in the movie. It's just an example of Stephen King's goofy world building and goofy plot elements. Um, so back to the panel. I I don't even know where to start, man. Uh, I I was all ready to talk about what disappointed me about the Dark Tower series. I only made it through like three books, and then you went and told me that the movie isn't the book. What am I gonna do? <laughs> I have read, by the way, all seven books. I, I really liked the first one. Um, I, I thought it was a, this weird, strange world, and, and I kind of wanted to know more. And Roland was everything that you said he was, you know, driven and, and you know, cold and impassive. And uh, and that would have made a heck of a movie. But, uh, but then it got silly, and, you know, they added more characters, and they added a dog, and that was it for me. As soon as they just added a dog to the cast, I was like, not, not happening. <laughs> See, there's some people who can do dogs well. Like, um, Dean R. Koontz has a magical dog in just about every one of his his uh, modern books. Just every one of his books in the last 20, 30 years, he has a magical dog in it. Not technically magical, just a, a, a dog who sometimes is actually magical, but, but who's really highly intelligent. Uh, so, yeah, Stephen King, Og isn't quite a dog. He's like a dog raccoon, but he's, he's a dog, basically. He's a pet dog. John C. Wright just totally nails the magical dog archetype, by the way, in his uh, Swan Knight's Sun book. Um, I'm sorry, but I wish I could tell you it was a great movie. Um, there is a lot of cool... No, that's a lie. <laughs> The shootout is kind of cool. If you stop thinking of him as the gunslinger Roland and start thinking of him as uh, a gun-based equivalent of Hawkeye from the Avengers movies, who can do impossible things with arrows, Roland can do impossible things with guns, things that are not physically possible with guns, because at that point, he's a superhero. That's, that's really the only way to make it through the fight is just say, okay, I'll just assume this is like a scene from an Avengers movie, only instead of using arrows, he uses guns. He uses two pistols. Um, if you can do that, it's actually a really cool gunfight. They do a decent job with it. Um, I don't know. This is kind of a Reading silly the point. Books, Go ahead, please. Go ahead. I was well, just I saying the main Roland is Walter. Yeah. <laughs> Roland is a magical cowboy. In the books, and, and it's a shame they didn't stick closer to him because in in book one, which I agree with you guys is awesome. Um, and spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't read it, but it's like thirty years old now. No. Uh, get the original yeah. one. Get the one that doesn't have nineteen in it. If you see mentions yeah. of the number nineteen, throw it away. It's a terrible book. It ruins like several it, key moments. Yeah, and then there are other differences in the re-release, like um, him finding like a weird radioactive slug that powers a water pump instead of the reactor. Just weird little tweaks. At one point, Roland kills a whole town by himself. 
and it's one of the best running action scenes I've ever read. And here's an ironic twist. Um, you know how many people are in the town? <laughs> 19? 47. Oh. <laughs> Full circle. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I was lowballing it a bit. But what did I set it up for you? This is an ironic, meaningless coincidence with the first half of the show, or the first half of the reviews of the of the show. Yeah, 47 people in the town. It is. It's a great action scene. It's an amazing action scene. Um, can I, I want to talk about that book, by the way, why the ending is so... It's 30 years old, folks. I mean, this book came out ages ago. So if I'm, I'm going to talk about something that's a spoiler, you're just going to have to put up with it. If you haven't read it by now, tough. It's well past the statute of limitations. Uh, because I know this is a subject that Brian will uh, really like to talk about, and I'll give him a chance to, to expand on it. I think the ending of that book, specifically what happens to Jake, is not just contrived, but is deeply morally nihilistic. And I think a good a, a writer with a better grasp of morality and decency would have found a way to have Roland defy the implicit uh, logic of the situation and still come out and be able to continue his quest. Um, and find a way around the limitations that they were putting on him. And everybody is silent. So I was taking a drink. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was letting you field this one, Brian. Okay. Yeah, I agree with what Daddy Warpig just said. And that particular ending was really jarring for me because in the scene leading up to it, the really the, the book really gets you into the story and you're really just you know chugging right along with it. Uh, it's it's almost a scene reminiscent from the the minecart scene in, in Temple of Doom, right? There's a there's actually a chase through like these subterranean tunnels. And then yeah all of a sudden it comes to uh, a, a crux, comes to a crisis point which I honestly found really forced when I read it. And it, it's probably been like seven years since I've, I read The Gunslinger. But yeah, I didn't quite know what was going on at first. It really blindsided me that um, Roland faces this terrible choice just out of nowhere. Like there's, a, there's just a sudden turn of events. And from a heroic point of view, he he definitely makes the wrong one. Like he's certainly not up to the standards of a pulp hero, but yeah, it's, um, it's consequentialist. It's morally relativist. It, it's cynical and Machiavellian and, and calculating. And at that point I just kind of decided, wow, I don't care about this guy's problems anymore. Like I, I really never cared about Roland again as a character for the rest of the series. They introduced other characters that um, I, I did come to care about, like like Eddie. But um, well, I wonder if they didn't do that deliberately. I wonder if he didn't do that deliberately. I and mean, if you think about it, as soon as as soon as Roland makes the choice at the end of the book, and you can see like how driven he is, and and how 
the only thing that really matters to him is the Dark Tower, that Stephen King had to introduce other characters that you might actually care about later. Uh, because because oh, yeah. Roland, Roland wasn't exactly I mean Roland obviously was never a hero but like he wasn't he was hard to make him a protagonist either. Yeah, I personally I'm gonna chalk a lot of this one up to Stephen King being an organic writer or a, a pantser. Um, any anytime we go to like a panel or a writer seminar workshop where they talk about the difference between outliners and discovery writers, they point out that the rule of thumb is that outliners writing, you know, it, it isn't as organic. It might be a bit more formulaic, but our endings really end on a bang. Like outliners have good endings because we generally know where the story is going. We know what the ending is going to be before we get there. Whereas uh, commonly among pantsers, they say, well, I, uh, why should I write if I already know where the story is going, right? It ruins the surprise for me. So pantsers kind of experience the book the way the reader does sequentially until the end and the end can be surprising for them as, as for the reader, but quite often they have horrible endings and um, Stephen King is always held up as an example of like the archetypal pantser whose endings are just a mess. And yeah, frankly, the ending of the gunslinger is a total mess. Like not just the scenario with Jake we're talking about, but then um, the, the scene after that with Walter is just, it's just bizarre and it feels rushed. And it feels like he, King didn't know what to do. It was just tacked kind of like um, an existential, kind of weird metaphysical... Trippy. Non-ending onto it. It's it's hallucinatory right? almost. It's trippy. That's like a vision quest. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It's kind of psychedelic, kind of like a, like a vision quest. It, when before the book had been like very grounded, very matter-of-fact, uh, deadly serious, and then there's a this sudden tonal shift. Yeah, this strange little coda that doesn't really doesn't really fit with the tone of the rest of the book. I, I still think that that book, the potential, the world it implied, if it had been developed better, could have been epic. That could have been great. It could have been what he had, what his ambition was. He wanted to make his own version of the Lord of the Rings, something big and grand and epic, something landmark, um, and. The potential was there for it because he has iconic scenes, iconic characters, iconic situations. You know, this gunslinger who, who basically is Clint Eastwood. They don't call him Clint Eastwood, but he looks like Clint Eastwood. Um, if you can picture one of Clint Eastwood's characters from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly or wherever, but he is a questing knight. He is a knight errant, and that's something that is in the Arthurian mythos. That's something that is in Wuja. That's something that is in so many different stories. And he's following this man in black. He's hunting down this villain who has destroyed his kingdom, and he's doing so to reach the Dark Tower and save his world from dying and save all the worlds from dying. Okay, that is a great setup for a story, which is what I was saying about Stephen King. He has the great core ideas, these elemental raw ideas that are, are lightning, that just grab people, that make you interested, and then sticks a bunch of goofy crap around it. So. Exactly. All right, uh, any, last, any last thoughts, Brian? I think you covered it. Just, yeah, 
the, the whole Dark Tower series, lots of potential, and it doesn't live up to it, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, it's a series that requires solid world building, but um, Stephen King isn't up to up to doing that. Even for him, it's a bridge too far as far as the hot chick conversion factor. It's yeah, too wacky an idea. Yeah, and for all the subsequent authors have been compared to Tolkien, like George R. R. Martin and Stephen King, it's really not fair to say that someone failed to live up to the world-building standards of Tolkien because Tolkien primarily wasn't trained as a fiction author. He was a professor of philology. I mean, he, he was a linguist who ended up writing The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and Silmarillion out of the desire to provide a justification for these invented languages he came up with. So, and, and he, he spent decades doing it. Yeah, he spent like 20 years just... Yeah. Um, building the background of the world and rebuilding it and rebuilding it and then rewriting the Lord of the Rings from the beginning once he got other stuff in place. So yeah, he worked, he worked his butt off. Yeah. He's the gold standard of, of world building and no one since has really equaled him because again, Lord of the Rings was a, a black swan event. It's, but it's non-reproducible. My, my point wasn't that Stephen King didn't live up to the standards of J.R.R. Tolkien. My point is that the story he was attempting to tell required a level of world building that is more than Stephen King himself was either willing or capable of doing. It required some in-depth world building uh, that Stephen King himself couldn't do or, or wouldn't do. Um, and so that's the failure there is not that he didn't reach the standards of J.R.R. Tolkien. The failure is that he didn't reach the standards that are necessary to tell the tale he set out to tell. Mm. Well said. Um, any last thoughts, John? I'm glad that uh, Brian introduced me to the term pantser because, as <laughs> you all know, I am very anti-pants here. We're aware of that. Um... All right, well, if that's, uh, we'll leave that as our final thought. Folks, thanks for tuning in. Uh, by the way, we're at youtube.com slash geekgab. We're also available, all of our shows, we have three shows. Uh, we have Geek Gab Game Night, our irregular show about role-playing games and the game mastering thereof. We have our weekly show, which is Brian's Geek Gab on the books. And then we, of course, have the regular Geek Gab show, Geek Gab Prime, which is typically on Saturdays. The Geek Gab Podcasting Network, all of our shows can be available. You can find them, are available at youtube.com slash geekgab, or you can check them out on SoundCloud, the iTunes Music Store, or the Google Play Store. Just do a search for Geek Gab. You can get them anywhere and download them to your mobile device, watch them on your browser, whatever you would like. Uh, we... Uh, by the way, folks, if you want to get announcements for when the show is going live so you can participate in the chat, then subscribe to the show and be, make sure to double secret subscribe. Once you've clicked subscribe, then click again on the little bell icon, and that will give you announcements from the show about when we're going live so you can show up and participate in the chat with our other awesome listeners. 
Thanks for tuning in, folks. We are signing out for today. But uh, don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.